Well, hey, church. Good to see everybody. Thank you. Appreciate the high back and uh, welcome everybody this morning. Uh, I want to do one uh, call out uh, already uh, mentioned by Lewis, but just to just to maybe maybe make a little bit of a plea, if you will. On uh, April 8th through 10th, we're doing the family camp, and I just wanted to make uh, a reminder, or maybe a statement, I should say, uh, that uh, this is not simply for mom, dad, and the kids. This is church-wide, okay? We want everybody to be a participant in this weekend, and you might say, you know what, the days of me sleeping at camp and staying overnight, and I'm like, I just, I don't know, I don't think I can, I can, you know, just can't see myself doing that anymore, then I need you, I want to invite you, the elders want to uh, uh, plead with you, come out on Saturday, okay? Get down there if you can for breakfast, and uh, just let's be together for the day. The idea here is, is as we're kind of coming out of COVID, it's uh, we, we need more time with one another, and we're trying to reconnect and maximize that connection. So I, I just want to say that uh, uh, this is for everybody. Uh, you may say, you know what, that's a drive down there. I've never been to Camp Neotaz, and you know, guess what? The GPS is just wonderful. You can make it down there. You can get back by dark. There's just, just, just make that happen on uh, that, that time, April 8th through 10th. That's a Friday night through Sunday morning. But if what I'm trying to say here specifically, come on Saturday if you were thinking about, well, I don't know if this is really right for me. Yeah, it is. Okay? Let's make that uh, happen together. Obviously, next Sunday... Let's make an all-out effort as well to uh, recognize McKaylee and uh, her, her last Sunday with us. Oh, my goodness. Uh, bittersweet there. So many good things happening in her life, but certainly uh, 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 we, we want to make that a celebration, yet that's a hard one. All right. How are you doing at using your kindness superpower, using your superpower, the kindness challenge. That was week one of this series. We're in week three here. And uh, again, we're trying to reiterate, as I said in, uh, in week one, but tried to say again last week, that by on your own, now some of you I know, you just have a predisposition to kindness. And maybe your, your personality or maybe your upbringing or whatever kind of leans in that direction. Because I know some of you scored pretty high on the kindness challenge this past week. You kind of blew it out of the water. I've heard back from you. You're already bragging about your kindness. Okay. Then there are others of us who, you know, we scored in the 20s out of 50. Okay. Let's just, be, let's just face it. So we need some help. We need some intervention through, through, through the power of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us along on this journey. Now, last week then, we talked about our blindness to kindness. And I think that can mean everything from the fact that we might not have treated this topic with all the gravity that it actually has in Scripture. Because we've just kind of assumed it in our culture, and then somewhere along the line it went away, didn't it? But can we practice it as a church, as a church body? And then the other side of blindness to kindness is maybe, is maybe that we're not quite as kind as we want to think we are. 
And this is what the research shows again and again, that we'd rate ourselves as pretty kind, but the realities might show us something different. So I invited you to jointhekindnesschallenge.com and heard back from a few of you this week. And again, that, uh, that link is in the email from uh, the Wednesday email, and I want to invite you to continue to participate in that time. Let's go back today, though, to an Old Testament story. And it's from 1 Samuel chapter 24. You see, think about this for a minute. Saul and David worshipped the same God. They lived in the same geographical space. They were essentially raised in the same culture. They knew the same history of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God working His way through the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Now Saul was that first king of this nation and then David, his son-in-law, was to become the second king. So in light of that background, it is striking how their views of the world differed. Saul seems to be determined to take life into his own hands. And again and again, David, he made some mistakes on the way, along the way, and some pretty serious ones, but he was committed to God in such a way that led to many things, including a life of kindness. It seems obvious on the one hand that they should be on the same team, wouldn't you think? Yet Saul is full of fear, paranoia, and jealousy toward David. To the point that Saul wants to take David's life. And this text in 1 Samuel 24 displays this vibrant confidence in God that David has, allowing him to express, in turn, express kindness to Saul. Now, it's a lot to read. In, in that chapter, and I struggled with whether to tell the story or read the Scripture. But my fear is that sometimes we don't read the Bible enough on our own, and I wanted you to see the power of the text this morning. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me as we read the words of the text. It starts in 20, chapter 24 and verse 1, and the text says this, and this is not on the screen, but if you'll listen. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 young men from all over Israel, and they set out for David and his men. And I like where David and his men, they're at the crags of the wild goats. What a place to hang out, right? And, and, and he came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. And the text says, Saul went in to relieve himself. Intr- intriguing 
section of Scripture that we have included here in our Bibles. And so David and his men were far back in the cave. Now that's verses 1 through 3. 3,000 men of Saul are after David and his men. Saul goes in to relieve himself, and, uh, and David's men are already back in the cave. Now verse 4 says this. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, in other words, he said to David, I will give your enemy, Saul, into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. In other words, this is your chance, David. And then the Bible says, David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You see, here these men were deep in the cave, and when Saul shows up to relieve himself, like confident soldiers, they try to persuade David to go on the aggressive, to go ahead and attack. And then verse 4 gives us this, no doubt David felt negative feelings towards Saul, and retaliation almost always feels justified when we're hurt, doesn't it? David was popular with, uh, clearly popular and in God's favor. So why shouldn't he, at this very moment, take action against Saul? And yet David doesn't kill Saul. Instead, while Saul is most vulnerable, he slices off a piece of Saul's robe. Now, verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken. for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed. Or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. You see, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, the Bible says. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. You see, David felt bad for his action because God had chosen Saul to be king. And he believed that he had no right to belittle God's actions. What I want you to see, first of all, here is David's submission to God's authority and God's sovereignty. And it is extensive throughout this text because it is submission to the authority of the Lord that now is going to uh, dictate. David's actions and responses in his life. He, just does, he doesn't just act willy-nilly. David could have inflicted the pain on Saul, and, and, and wouldn't this have belittled the truth that Saul was God's chosen? You see, David's men wanted to fight back. However, David understood that God was in charge, and God had a bigger, 
better plan, even if it didn't make sense to him at, the point, at that point, and retaliation wasn't a part of it. Now, I want to make a point right here, and, and we're going to go on with the text, and then I'll try to draw some points in a minute. But I want to say this, church, truth and kindness are not in conflict. We need to figure out how to bring those two together. Verse 8, then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? What an interesting text. He kneels down. He's in submission to Saul. He recognizes who Saul is. And at the same time, he confronts Saul with some kind of misperception that Saul has about who he is. Verse 11 says it this way. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand. Now guess what, David? He defends himself here, and he says, To indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion, I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. What does David do? I want you to hear this. In this conflictual relationship, he makes the first move to be reconciled. Potentially at great risk. Each side still had all their warriors. He addresses Saul as king, and he speaks to Saul's paranoia, and he says, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? You see, is there any evidence in our text that David wanted to harm Saul? Could it be that Saul believed a lie about David until David spoke out? Here's another point as you think about your own relationships. So often our perceptions become true in our mind. This is what happened to Saul. And they go untested because we haven't actually sought out with that person, whether it's true or not. You see, Saul had no need to fear David. In fact, verse 14, David says, Saul, you should fear me about as much as you fear a dead dog or a flea, he says. Go back and read it. It's in the Scripture. David makes the first move, he sets out his intention, he gets things out of the open, and then verse 3, but my hand shall not be against you. Now, this action by David then triggers this response in Saul, and this will be our last full slide to read, but hang with me here, beginning in verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. 
David making the first move, treating Saul in the way he treated him, Saul's response was to cry at that moment. And he said, you're more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. And the Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. And when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. You see, David and Saul had reached an agreement, and Saul only kept his promises for a while, if you read on to 1 Samuel 26. Okay, but David keeps his word to Saul and his household for as long as he was king. And this was extraordinarily hard. And as I said last week and the week before, this requires superpowers. And the power of God, the power of grace, this requires something beyond merely our personal capacity, what we might have living within us. I don't know that we can do it without outside help. We do not have to try a a, a try-harder religion, though. I want you to hear that. We have one that is motivated by God's grace and by God's power. And so we claim that again. All right. So what will it take, then, for you to reach out to those who are unkind to you? That's where our message most logically moves, doesn't it? Or those who are, maybe you believe at least right at this moment, are in opposition to you. Or to use the language of last week where we replaced enemies with the word irritant. Those who irritate you. Let's see if we can see the principles in this text. The first one is this. Resist driving a wedge where there is already a gap. This is what David does. Isn't this a from God principle? This is what verses 4 through 7 are trying to say. In what ways are you only seeing the hurt someone is causing you, or, and you might not even see it correctly? Or how can you affirm their worth and their value as a person created in the image of God and refuse to continue to drive a wedge where there is already a gap? Number two, make the first move. This is verses 8 through 15. Biblically, we don't sit back and wait for our enemies, our irritants, our fellow church members, our siblings, our neighbors, our spouse, whomever, to reach out and come to us, we move. I'm not saying it's easy. We're often in conflict because of what we've heard about someone or what they have heard about us, and often we are reacting to perceptions of the situation rather than the situation itself. The point is we must make the first move to clear the air. And when we do that, we offer our heart 
So there is a risk. And we offer our best intentions and our, and our motives. If there is someone you're avoiding that you should pursue, I want you to think about that this morning. Are you waiting for them to make the first move? I suggest you turn that around. The third thing in our text, verses 16 to 22, in the section that we read, is pledge to do good to the other regardless. In fact, you can go right back and not take this 1 Samuel 24 and outline 4 through 7 and then 8 through 15 and 16 through 22 and find these massive, massive challenges, the Word of God. Now, I want to say it this way. David nixed the negatives. He wasn't perfect. He faced his own demons. He had his sin streak. And still the story is an exemplary illustration of dealing positively with the enemies and the irritants in your life. So let's talk about the spirit of David for just a a minute in a little bit different way. And I want to lay out a goal for you. Here's the goal. It is to say nothing negative. Sounds like a double negative. It's really kind of a poorly worded sentence, but oh well. Forgive me, Dale. Okay, say nothing negative to the targets of your kindness for the next 30 days. This is really the kindness challenge said negatively. Think you could do it? It's going to require the outlook of David, not of Saul. There are a lot of people smiling right now. Like, oh, hmm. Here's a way of putting it. If I asked you to tell me the ratio, anybody good at math? Anybody poor at math but would still like to hear a ratio? Okay, here we go. If, If I asked you to tell me the ratio of how many times you have complained compared to the number of times that you have praised. Go ahead and put up our slide there for that next one. Number of praises over the number of complaints. There's a numerator and a denominator. If that number is less than one, I want you to figure out how you're going to improve it. You get how to do the math on this one? Wouldn't that be something if you could have like five praises for every complaint and you get a five? Or ten? Praises over complaints and not the other way around. Okay, I'm going to give you another one. I thought of another one. I even like this one just as well. I like them both. All right, go ahead, next slide. Thanks, Jeff. Nix the negatives. How about this? The number of times you have confessed. Your own stuff. Relative to the number of complaints that you've extended. Do you end up with a number over one? Confess, you say. Wouldn't that be something if we could grow in our number here with this ratio? 
by learning to confess first. Let's put it this way for just a minute, nixing the negatives. One woman tried to practice this 30 days of stopping the negatives in her home. And about day 10, she was doing pretty well. Her husband said to her, give it to me straight. The doctor told you I was going to die, didn't he? You know, things so changed in their household that he was certain something bad was up. I want to give you five specific ways that's laid out in the book by Sean T. Feldhan that you might think about this way, this week, as you nix the negatives. The first one is exasperation. Now, these are hard, okay? These are hard. But exasperation is, is, is about always having to correct others, pointing out others' mistakes, raising your voice when you don't need to, saying, honey, the diaper tab doesn't go that way. You see, you can be absolutely right in your observation or your criticism and be absolutely wrong as you use it as a weapon of unkindness. In other words, put up the next slide, Jeff. Don't be a Karen. Okay. I will say no more. Number two, catastrophizing. This is, oh, I spilled my coffee. I'm going to die. All right, I won't say any more on that one. Number three, suspicion. That is not giving the benefit of the doubt, judging the motives of other people. You can see this one very clearly in our text, allowing perception or body language or maybe just someone else having a bad day to become reality for us in terms of who that person is. Number four, grumbling. You see, this is challenged from the early parts of the Old Testament all the way through the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians saying, do nothing without complaining or grumbling. Finally, a retaliatory spirit, number five, that is to get even. You hurt me, I will hurt you. All right, as we look at our text, David was tremendous in his response. What a model, what a role model. And he was somehow effective at this lifestyle of nixing the negatives. I, I want to I suggest that there is even one then that comes in the lineage of David. 
in the line of David that was even greater at all of this? Jesus himself, rich in kindness. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Those of us who have come to Christ by faith have moved from, becoming, from being enemies to being friends of God. And if you think about this, while we are in the spirit of David and of Jesus and carrying the same baton with the same spirit and were once his enemy. Think about the, the principles this way. He closed the gap. He didn't widen it. He made the first move. And he was committed to our good. And guess what? The Lord Jesus is committed to our enemies as well and our irritants. And if Christ died for them too, they were unworthy and He made the first move. What then shall we do?